Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 1 John chapter 1. And I'll read verse 8 of chapter 1 through verse 2 of chapter 2. First John 1, beginning at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Let's ask God for his help in prayer as we come to the preaching of his word this evening. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous who is our advocate, and who is our propitiation. Help us to understand what these things mean, and then help us to lay hold of them by faith and live in the light of them and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because of your Son. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. If you are here last week, you may recall that I entitled this section following just one of the commentaries I read, the commentary by I. Howard Marshall. I entitled this section from verse 5 of chapter 1 through verse 2 of chapter 2, Walking in the Light. And I was unable to finish that section last week, but that's my goal tonight is just to finish what I didn't finish last week. So what we've seen already from these verses, starting at chapter 1, verse 5, is the opening statement of John after his introduction in the first four verses of this epistle. And in his opening statement in verse 5, he said that he would sum up his message this way by saying that God is light. You read it there at the end of verse 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then we see in this section three perversions of John's message. I mentioned that there were false teachers, obviously. When you look through the whole epistle and try to put the pieces together, there were false teachers that were troubling the church. In chapter 2, later on, we'll see that he calls them antichrists. Small a, we could say, not the antichrist. And in verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10, we see three of the ways that they perverted the message of the gospel. Basically, you could say that they perverted it by ungodly, hypocritical living. You see that in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in the darkness. And then secondly, and this is in verses 8 and 10, 
by the denial of sin, saying that they had no sin or that they never had sinned. And then we saw three corrections to these perversions. And the first one was, as Christians, you should walk in the light, verse 7. And secondly, you should confess your sins, verse 9. And then thirdly, and this is in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you aim not to sin and remember your advocate. Verses 1 and 2, the last part, after it says, uh, well, after it says you aim, first of all, let's look at the first part of verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. So aim not to sin. As a Christian, live your life conscious that you do sin, as John was making the point at the end of chapter 1, but aiming not to sin. And then last week, we began this second point. Remember your advocate in verses 1b, the last part of verse 1, and 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Remember your advocate. In other words, bear this in mind and live in this light all the time. We have an advocate as God's people, as Christians. Last week we considered four out of the six things I had to explain about our advocate. And I'll just review the first four very quickly. I gave the definition of an advocate. It's someone who pleads your case on your behalf, like a lawyer. An advocate is actually a synonym for a lawyer. And therefore, Jesus Christ's, what we call his intercessory work or his mediatorial work is in view here with this word advocate and also with the word propitiation we're going to come to in verse 2. We sang, my advocate appears for my defense on high. That's our advocate. We have an advocate. That's what the definition of an advocate is. Secondly, we saw our need for an advocate. As John writes there in the middle of verse 2, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We do have sin. We do sin, though we're Christians. And we will sin. So we need an advocate. And we have this advocate with the Father. That's the point. The third point I have, the reality that we have an advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he says here, John does, that we have him as an advocate. There is one mediator between God and men, and he, if we are Christians, is ours. And then the fourth thing we saw is the identity of the advocate. Verse 1b, he is Jesus Christ the righteous. He's righteous. We have an advocate whose righteousness and integrity is unblemished and is unassailable. So that his advocacy is 100% effective all the time. If he is your advocate, 
If He stands between you and God and pleads on your behalf, His advocacy will never, ever fail. Tonight we're going to consider the last two things then, the two things about our advocate that I didn't get to last week, and they're both in verse 2. They are, first of all, the great achievement or accomplishment of our advocate, and then secondly, the worldwide scope of his achievement. So first, the great achievement or accomplishment of our advocate, the first part of verse 2. It says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. This is the thing we could say that his present advocacy is built upon. His propitiation, his being our propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. It's not a very common word in the New Testament. So what does it mean? Well, a propitiation is something that satisfies the wrath of God, the anger or the indignation of God against sinners. We read in verses 8 and 10 of chapter 1 that we're sinners. If we say we're not, even as Christians, we deceive ourselves. Everyone comes into this world as a sinner. And God, the Bible tells us, we read it last week, I think it was in Psalm 7, that He is angry with the wicked every day. And He's righteously angry with the wicked He's angered against sin and sinners, and he is opposed to sin and to sinners. As sinners, people are God's enemies. He's angry with them. And we saw it earlier, as I mentioned just this evening, last week we saw it, that we have a need. We have a need for an advocate because we have sin. And God hates sin. He is light and there is no darkness in Him. And He doesn't just welcome darkness to have fellowship with Him. He has wrath against sin. He is holy, as we saw in verse 5. God is light. He is righteous, as we read in verse 9. He is faithful and just, or righteous. And He is long-suffering. So, Even though God is not judging you right now, causing lightning to strike you because you're a sinner, even if you sinned in a very grievous way today, it's because He's long-suffering. It's not because He doesn't hate sin. And furthermore, He is almighty. He can do whatever He wants. And therefore, He will punish all sin with death. And he will not get distracted. Like my dad sometimes did when he said, you wait till, you get, till we get home. And he forgot because he got distracted. God will not get distracted. And God will not become wishy-washy and just wink at sin. He goes on record saying he hates sin. He's not going to change no matter how long it is between now and the judgment And he's not going to change priorities because he said, well, you know, I didn't really anticipate how much sin there was going to be with all these billions of people populating the world, and maybe I need to just uh, pick out certain sins to punish in hell. No, that's not going to happen with God. And he's never going to announce that he was only kidding in all the things he said about how hateful he is of sin. Turn with me to Romans 3. 
in verse 25. He hates sin, and therefore we need a mediator, someone to go between us and God, and someone to be a propitiation. That's what Jesus Christ is. That's what the text says here. And the point is that someone is going to take the wrath of God upon himself for your sin. And it's either going to be you in hell forever, or it's going to be Jesus Christ on the cross, because that's where he was the propitiation. He was the one, he was the thing, if you will, that satisfied the wrath of God for his people, for those for whom he died. Romans 3, 25 and 26. Speaking of Christ, it says, Whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So God put Jesus Christ forth to be a propitiation. There's the same word we have in 1 John 2, verse 2. In other words, God is angry with sinners... Christ appears to die for sinners. He hangs on the cross. And as he's on the cross, what's he doing? He's receiving the wrath of God upon himself that God had toward sinners. And Jesus Christ took that wrath from his Father in the place of sinners. And so everyone for whom he took that wrath is going to go free. Why? Because God's wrath toward that person is pacified. It is satisfied. It's not burning in the soul of God anymore toward that person because it has been dealt with through the death of Jesus Christ. That's what it means when it says he was a propitiation by his blood, by his death. And then we go on in verse 26. It says, To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just or righteous. He's perfectly righteous. That He might be just, that is righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So He maintains His perfect righteousness by punishing sin in his son and not in the sinner, and then he makes the sinner righteous. He maintains his perfect righteousness and still justifies sinners. And the way he does that is by this matter, a matter of propitiation. Let's turn to one other text, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 21, it explains how propitiation works, though in this text it doesn't use the word propitiation. It says, For he made him, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ the Son, who knew no sin, he's perfectly righteous too, he made him to be sin for us. In other words, God laid the sins of his people upon his Son, Jesus Christ, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I deserve to die for my sins. Jesus never sinned. He doesn't deserve to die. And that's the gospel. He dies in my place, and I don't die. He became a propitiation for me. He absorbed the wrath of God upon himself in my place, 
and I go free. I am given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The sins must be punished. They're either going to be punished in Christ on the cross or in hell. And here is the one way that sins can be punished and the sinners saved. And it is a way that completely satisfies God's own justice and His wrath. That's the gospel. Perhaps that one word, propitiation, summarizes the gospel the way no other single word does. We could argue that grace is another word, but it's not as specific about how we are saved. Many people look at that and they say, and people have done this over the last several uh, decades, maybe a couple of hundred years, they've looked at that and they've said, that really sounds barbaric. And they've said, that can't really be true about the God of the Bible. That can't be true about the God of the New Testament, that he would demand the death of his own son just because he's angry with people. They say that sounds petty. It sounds carnal. It sounds barbaric. It sounds like some kind of pagan religion of old. And so if you look in some newer translations, you see translations that don't literally translate with that word propitiation. Some of the ones I saw this past week when I looked it up were that he's an atoning sacrifice, which he is, but that's not what the word says, or an expiation that is, he just removes our sin from us, but it doesn't tell us how. Or he is, in one translation, God's way of dealing with sin. He certainly is, but the Scripture is more specific because God is light. He really does hate sin. And that's why this is not a barbaric thing. It's a righteous thing that Christ should be our propitiation. And that is the way that sinners are saved. So there's the gospel, and that's what it means that Christ is a propitiation. And here, in this point, different from the word advocate, the focus is not on what Jesus Christ does today when you sin, that you have an advocate with the Father, but the focus is on what he did 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross. Well, how does that help you today? Well, the main thing I'll say for right now is you need to remember that. You need to remember that that's the Savior you have. He was a propitiation for you. He took your sins upon himself and died for you, Christian, so that you wouldn't have to die for those sins. And that's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, which we will observe tonight. Remember how Jesus said it? Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, so that you might keep constantly before your mind and heart that his body was given for you or broken for you. He endured it, what he endured on the cross, so that you would not have to in hell. He endured what he endured on the cross so that you might live forever. So it's wonderful to have this precious ordinance back after a five-month absence for us. But now the last thing we need to notice is the worldwide scope of Jesus' achievement, the worldwide scope of his achievement, the last part of the verse. After it says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, then it says, and not for ours only, but also 
for the whole world. So this is the worldwide scope of Jesus' achievement. And I'll just take the time to point out three things about this. First of all, it is not saying here when it says he is the propitiation for the whole world, it is not saying that he died to save every single man, woman, and child who has ever lived or whoever will live. Some people call that unlimited atonement that Jesus died for everyone. If you want to read a little bit more about that, I'll recommend a few pages in John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. You look up in the index where he deals with 1 John 2, verse 2, and you can read. But the point is this. That would be impossible that Jesus was the propitiation for every single person in the whole world. Why do I say that? Because there's a place called hell. And the Bible makes it very clear that God made the place called hell, and he sends people to the place called hell. And if Jesus was the propitiation of every man, woman, and child who ever lived, they couldn't go to hell. Because hell is where they feel God's wrath forever and ever and ever. And if Jesus died to pacify the wrath of God for every single person who ever lived, then God would have no wrath against sinners left. So that's an impossibility that it could be saying he died to pacify God's wrath against every person who ever lived. That would be a contradiction or just a flat-out lie. And it would be unjust. But God is just verse 9 of chapter 1, and Christ is just, he's Jesus Christ the righteous, verse 1 of chapter 2, and they would never, ever cause anyone to suffer, suffer double jeopardy. In other words, have Christ suffer for their sins, and then they would suffer for their own sins. That's an impossibility. Why does it say it this way then, that uh, he's the propitiation for the whole world. I, what it means here in this context is this. It's not just for us, John is saying to his readers, that Christ died. Look, notice back in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, the apostles. In other words, you people in the churches to which I'm writing... You have fellowship with us. We're a select group in this world. But John is here saying it's not just for us. It's for other people as well. It's for the whole world. Everyone that is saved in this whole world. Christ is their propitiation. We could put it this way to use the, uh, uh, the current language. All lives matter to him. Black lives, white lives, brown lives, all lives matter to him. Asian lives, European lives, African lives, North American lives, South American lives, Australian lives, they all matter to him. It's not just for us, John is saying. It's for anyone who would ever be saved. And it's not just now, in the first century, not just in the second century lives that he cares. It's for all lives, all the time. There are people throughout the history of the world, even in the 21st century, for whom he was a propitiation and is their propitiation. As it says 
in Revelation chapter 14, where it speaks of the everlasting gospel preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And that is throughout history. That's the meaning of John here. In other words, his death is the only way that a sinner can be saved. The only way you can be delivered from the eternal torments of hell is through the death of Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for his people's sins. God is not going to just wink at anyone's sin. He's going to pour out his wrath on you, either on, in, on you yourself in hell or upon Christ on the cross. So let me just close with three things regarding propitiation Three things, especially I'm directing them to you if you are not a Christian as you listen to me tonight. And the first one is this. Propitiation is what you need. You need it because you are sinful, as we've seen, and because God is angered against sin and against you in your sin, and because the consequences are eternal. It's either Christ pays for your sins on the cross or you pay for them yourself in hell. And you may say, well, you're telling me I need a propitiation, but I don't really feel the need. And the truth is, not everyone does feel the need. Hebrews 2.15 says that Christ died to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But not everyone has conscious fears about death. Asaph complained in one of the Psalms, Psalm 73, about the ungodly wealthy people around him. And here's what he wrote, that they are not in trouble as other men. They have more than heart could wish. They are always at ease. That doesn't sound like people who are laboring under the fear of death. And let's be honest, Scripture acknowledges that there are many people like that, and maybe you're one of them. Maybe you say, that's what my life is like. And Asaph even said about them in Psalm 73, they have no pangs in their death. And Job said in Job 21, 13, the wicked spend their days in wealth, and in a moment they go down to the grave. In other words, their whole life was ease, Job is complaining, as he suffers. And even in their death, I mean, they live a cushy life, they're not well going around in fear of God. And their death came, and I heard the death reported, and they said he passed away in his sleep, and he had no suffering. And Job's saying, how could that be? Well, maybe you will live like that and even die like that. But the problem is that, as it says in Hebrews 9, after you die, there's the judgment. Many Christians sitting here tonight perhaps never had fear of death until the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin at the time of their conversion. Some people don't begin to fear death until they sense that death is starting to approach or some kind of calamity is coming, maybe like a hurricane in uh, Florida or North or South Carolina, or maybe like COVID-19. A lot of people are living in fear right now around us. They won't come out of their houses. They think what we're doing here tonight is crazy and dangerous. They're starting to fear death, maybe for the first time in their lives. Some people don't fear death till they're on their deathbed. 
There have been many famous, wealthy people, powerful people, who lived a godless life without a care until their deathbed. But if those people don't repent, those are just the beginnings of their fears. In Romans 2, we're told that at the time of the judgment, God will unleash his indignation, his anger, and his wrath against them, and they will experience tribulation and anguish like no one has ever known. So that's the first thing about propitiation. Propitiation is what you need if you are not a Christian. Second, propitiation only comes through Jesus Christ. In some religions, they prescribe animal sacrifices to appease the wrath of God. Will that satisfy God? It absolutely will not. Some have even tried human sacrifice. Will that satisfy the wrath of God? No. Those kinds of sacrifices save no one. It's only the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that can save a sinner. And then thirdly and finally about propitiation. Propitiation is what you will have, sinner, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. You will have a propitiation for your sins, someone that takes God's wrath away from you so that you might live forever. All of your sins will be taken away. You may have done very many, very ugly things in your life, but as 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, even this very night, the Bible says you will not have to face the wrath of God in the day of judgment. As it says in Luke 18, you will go down to your house justified. That's my prayer for you. I encourage you to repent today and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for what it teaches us about Jesus Christ, your son, our advocate and our propitiation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. Help us to rejoice in this great reality that you are our propitiation. Especially help us to do this at the table tonight. And turn the eyes and the hearts of unbelievers sitting here or listening to your word here tonight. Turn them to yourself that they might believe and be saved even this very night. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.